Well, my name is Marshall Brown. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. Let me add my welcome to Chris and to Nick and Nathaniels. Uh, good to have you here. Join, uh, welcome also those of you who are joining us online through the various avenues and media that are available to us. We're starting a new series today. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open if you have them. It's on page 785 of the Pew Bible or the bulletin that's right in front of you that is printed the first chapter of the book of Habakkuk as well as the first verse of the second uh, chapter, the book of Habakkuk. Let me pray before we start this series and this sermon. God, we're about to start a new sermon series and there's a lot of things going on in our lives. It's the dog days of summer. We're coming and going on vacation. School is around the corner. There are a lot of things to occupy our imaginations and thoughts. But we've come here together and trust in some way that you will meet us, even if we don't know if we believe in you. We've shown up uh, in some small sense because we trust that you will meet us. And we pray, God, through this ancient word that I think is so timely, that you would speak to us, that you would renew our hearts, that you would allow us to experience more of your love, that we might reflect that love to a world so much in need of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Chris already talked about the Olympics. One of my favorite things about the Olympics, I'm a little bit of a, a sap, a sentimentalist. Uh, I like the backstories, right? The backstories, right? Before, you know, they're programming and the big event is about to happen, but before they do, they cut away and they're going to tell you about one of the contestants. There's usually sappy music, sappy music and like sepia-toned photos from someplace that's very American uh, where this person is from. They tell the story. There's usually a great obstacle they have to overcome. Sometimes there's a coach or a mentor or a parent who has come alongside and made it possible. And then they cut to the, you know, the starting line, you know, that now they're going to go. I love the backstory. How did they get there. What is the backstory? Well, today we start a series on the prophet Habakkuk. We don't even know how to say it. I'm going to call it, I'm going to say it that way, Habakkuk. Uh, and Habakkuk wrote the most famous words on faith, the most quoted words on faith ever written. The righteous will live by faith. The just will live by faith. Quoted three times in the New Testament and then many times in the history of the church. But in many ways, this book, the book of Habakkuk, is the backstory of Habakkuk's own faith. It's the backstory of Habakkuk's own faith. And because this book, as we will see in the next four weeks, we'll study it all the month of August, is a brilliant picture of how a mature faith comes about. How does someone become a person of faith? But it's not just a picture uh, because Habakkuk didn't just write about faith. Habakkuk lived his faith. In 1994, I was interning in the United States Senate in Washington, D.C. for my senator. At the time in my life, I was planning to go to law school and into politics, and what you do is you go intern in Washington. But during that time, I had a couple pivotal events happen that turned me off from that, but, um, as you might imagine. But one of them was that summer I worshipped at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda, Maryland. Now, Fourth Pres is a very famous church. It's had several famous pastors and preachers and also famous members. I very vividly remember sitting in the pew and looking down. I was like, oh, that's Jack Kemp who had just run for president. Um, famous church, famous people, famous pastors. But what I remember most about Fourth Presbyterian Church is that summer, Rob Norris, the senior pastor at the time, preached a sermon series on the book of Habakkuk. And more than any series that I can ever remember, that series has stayed with me. Whenever I think about Habakkuk, I think about that summer and those sermons by Rob Norris. And as I thought back over the last couple of weeks getting ready for this series, I've had to wonder 
what role those sermons, particularly on this book, the book of Habakkuk, had in my life in calling me away from my political and legal aspirations into and unto pastoral ministry. And among other things, I think there are at least two reasons why Habakkuk impacted me so deeply. And I think they're the same two reasons they're important for us to study this month. The first is this. I like Habakkuk, and I think you will too. We don't know much about him. I've already mentioned we don't even know how to say his name. I'm going to say it the way I do, but there's no guarantee that it's right. He gets to heaven, he's like, you've been mispronouncing my name. But, um, but God, I mean, there's a couple things I love about Habakkuk. He loves God fiercely. He loves God's holiness, his purity. He loves God's law. He cares about economic justice. He cares about the poor and impoverished. He is a man who prays boldly and worships humbly. He's a godly man's man. Not machismo and bluff, but sincerity, authenticity, and courage. He also loves people. And one of the things I love most about Habakkuk, I think, is he's willing to have his mind changed. I mean, I think it's one of the most rare virtues in our culture, especially our divided political culture, people who are actually willing to listen and have their minds changed. Habakkuk changes. He grows. His journey is one from grief to hope, from doubt to trust, from complaint to praise. He's just a real dude. He's not falsely pious. He's my kind of guy. I want to be more like Habakkuk, and I think you'll feel the same way as we work our way through this book. But the second reason that Habakkuk impacted me, and I think it's important for us, is his message just seems so timely. Let me give you a background. I'm a history major in college, so I'm a little bit of a nerd. I'm going to try not to geek out on you too much. But you need to understand this background, okay, if you're going to understand the book of Habakkuk. First, Habakkuk's what we call a minor prophet. There's 12 of them in the Jewish scriptures. And it doesn't mean they're less inspired. It just means they're smaller than the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Now, Habakkuk ministered and wrote in the late 7th century B.C. That's the late 600s B.C. Remember, you count backwards, okay, Uh, in the B.C., okay? Uh, And he ministered in Judah, which was the southern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Israel. The the northern kingdom called Israel uh, had already been obliterated. And within 20 years of Habakkuk's ministry, the uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, would also be made captive and exiled into Babylon. So, but in the early parts of his life, early parts of his life, so that's what's 20 years away uh, from this book. But in the early parts of, of his life, Habakkuk, Habakkuk lived and ministered through the, one of the great reigns of all of Judah's history. A guy named Josiah, the greatest king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, he restored right worship. Uh, he put godly practices into Judah. But then in 609 B.C., Josiah was killed in battle, and he was succeeded as king by two of his sons who were ne'er-do-wells. The second one's the main one we'll talk about, a guy named Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim, this guy was a disaster. Basically, everything good that uh, Josiah had done, Jehoiakim tried to undo, okay? And so so Habakkuk lives during this time of all the good things that have happened being undone. And there's a reigning immorality and just it's just chaos within the country, okay? So things are falling apart within Judah, inside, okay? But then on the outside, something else is happening outside of Judah. On the world stage, there's a new bad boy in town, and his name is the Babylonian Empire. And, he's in, and the Babylonians are in the process of blowing through Assyria, conquering the Assyrians, and eventually the Egyptians, the two other great powers of the day. And Babylon is headed straight towards Judah, and they're looking to conquer. So here's the picture. Internally, chaos and immorality. 
degradation, right? Externally, a real military threat. Which is to say, Habakkuk lived, wrote, and ministered in a time of great uncertainty, upheaval, fear, change. Quoting Rob Norris, the old securities have ceased. There's a sense of impending doom. They're on the verge of exile. Or the way that I would say it, the mess is about to hit the fan. Seem timely? I think so. But maybe not in the exact way that we're initially thinking. Several months ago, my wife Alice and I were having dinner with some friends. And they have boys who are our, our son's age. And the wife said to us, she said, you know, I think it's a privilege to raise children during this time. It just feels so timely and important. She said, I'm raising children who might get to bear witness to God from the lion's den or the fiery furnace. And then she went on. She said, because you know, great faith is only born in times of suffering and trial. I can't tell you how many times I've thought about that conversation since we had it. And you see, Habakkuk is living and ministering in a time of impending doom for God's people. A time where there's about to be injustice and violence against God's people. Literally the verge of exile. Within 20 years, they'll be gone. Temple destroyed. But just for a moment, before we dive into Habakkuk, I want you to consider who this generation produced. Jeremiah... Ezekiel, Joel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. All these guys, they probably knew each other in Jerusalem. And you might not know the names I just listed off, but let me tell you something about each of the names I just listed. Those are people of amazing and strong faith who suffered for their faith. And what I want us to see in the book of Habakkuk and studying this man and his prophecy is both a paragon of living by faith which is this book's major theme, but also I want us to see Habakkuk as a template for how we, you and I, can grow in our faith, okay? Habakkuk, I like him, I think you will too. Now, the book of Habakkuk is structured in a dialogue, basically, between Habakkuk and God. Habakkuk goes first, and then God, and then Habakkuk, then God, then Habakkuk finishes it up, okay? And this morning, we're going to cover the first three parts of the dialogue, Habakkuk, then God, then Habakkuk again. My outline is this, the first four verses, the prophet complains, Verses 5 to 11, God surprises. And then verse 12 through the first part of chapter 2, the prophet complains again. (laughs) Uh, Habakkuk, I like this guy. But first, the perplexed prophet complains, verses 1 to 4. Now this is a complaint, this is a lament addressed directly to God. Verse 2, oh Lord, how long? Verse 3, why do you make us see iniquity? Now, most likely, Habakkuk is complaining against the injustice and the immorality within the nation of Israel caused by the reign of Jehoiakim, whom I've already described. Let me tell you a little bit more about this king. Okay, He had been propped up by the Egyptians when the Egyptians killed his father. And almost immediately, as I've said, he tries to undo the work of his father. Jeremiah, the other prophet, tells us in chapter 22 that this is what the things that Jehoiakim did. He used unpaid labor. He didn't pay the people, but he built himself a house of cedar. All the while, the nation around him is burning down. He takes the tax money that comes into him to pay off his Egyptian warlords uh, so that he can live the life that he wants to live. Look down at the text, verse 3. This is what Habakkuk says it's like. He says it's a time of violence and destruction. 
Verse 4 says that things have gotten so bad that the law of Moses, the Torah, that's the word there, the Torah meant to protect and to guide God's people, the Torah has become paralyzed. Let me put that in 21st century parlance. Law and order are gone. Justice is perverted. There's nothing to, there's no recourse. Have you ever been in a situation where justice was perverted? Or where you had no recourse to the right thing being done? It's scary. Like most of you, I've had a very privileged life where I've almost never felt that way. I've never felt that justice might not happen. Very few times. But one time, I was alone in a third world country. And I was accosted by police, they showed these badges, for taking pictures of a political situation. They surrounded me. I was terrified because I knew immediately that justice was not an option here. I didn't even have my American passport with me. Justice was not an option. And when you realize there's no rule of law, that it's paralyzed, it is not a good feeling. And Habakkuk is jealous for God's people. He's zealous. And so he makes his complaint to God, why is this happening? And how long is it going to keep going on? How long will the law be paralyzed? Author Robert Anderson says it this way. He says this, a silent heaven is the greatest mystery of our existence. A silent heaven is the greatest mystery of our existence. Why? How long? And either you don't get the answer you want or you don't get an answer at all. And it's not just injustice that prompts prayers like these, like why and how long. Chronic pain intensifies. The cancer comes back. A child dies. A teenager takes his or her life. The silent epidemic of miscarriage pushes a woman into a lonely, sad place. Tsunami kills a quarter million people. Violence surges again in Chicago. A pandemic kills hundreds of thousands in our country, millions around the world. Frays are already frail social bonds. And we pray, God, deliver us. And sometimes the pandemic comes back. Now, before we see how God replies to Habakkuk's complaint against this injustice and against this violence, I want you to note a couple of things. First of all, Habakkuk's complaint is not against the people out there. He's not complaining against the Babylonians and the Egyptians at this point. He's talking about the people on the inside. He's talking about the people of God. To quote 1 Peter, our last sermon series, judgment begins at the household of God. Not out there in here. But second, do you talk to God like this? (laughs) Do, do Do you talk to God? Do you complain to God like this? Or in the words of the hymn that we so often sing, whatever my God ordains is right. Is that, is that more your prayer? Habakkuk is passionate. He is lodging a formal complaint and he is angry at God for God's sake. We are one month away from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And those of us who are old enough will be recalling where we were that morning. At the time, I was in seminary, which is grad school for preachers. And once we got the news, we went to the chapel for a time of prayer. And one of the first people to pray, I remember vividly, stood up to pray. And with a very calm voice, he said, you know, Lord, we just pray your will would be done. We pray that you would bring glory out of this situation. Dear Lord God. The next person got up and prayed with passion. Stop this attack. 
Keep those people on those planes safe. Bring this violence to an end. And I was like, I'm with that guy. (laughs) Habakkuk is that guy. Begging, complaining, passionate. Why? How long? His complaint is a form of loyalty to God. Think about that. His complaint is a form of loyalty to God because his theology of God, his understanding of God is not matching his experience. And because he sees something, he's saying something. Now, if Habakkuk is perplexed in these first verses, he is about to get his bell rung. Look with me at the second section, the sovereign God surprises, verses 5 to 11. Because God replies to Habakkuk. And he basically says, I see what you see, Habakkuk. I see what you see. But I need you to lift your eyes a little bit. Get a little more perspective. Verse 5, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe it if told. And then the bombshell, verse 6, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are the Babylonians. That's the Babylonians. God is saying those evil and terrible Babylonians who are destroying the world, they're coming to destroy the people of Judah, the people of God. And Habakkuk, I am the one who is sending them. And in case Habakkuk was not familiar with how terrible the Babylonians were, verses 6 to 11 use at least 20 different images and features to describe the violence of their ways. They are bitter and hasty, dreaded and fearsome, faster than leopards and eagles, more fierce than wolves. They come for violence, they scoff, they laugh, they take what is not theirs, and they leave destruction in their wake like a tornado, a violent wind that passes through, leaving nothing behind. Now, it's important to note this judgment that's coming on the nation of Judah was not out of the blue. God is simply making good on a promise he had made more than 500 years before. In the book of Deuteronomy, he said, if you will not obey my voice, verse 28, this is verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, if you will not obey the voice or be careful to do all these commandments, then, verse 25, I will cause you to be defeated before your enemies, verse 41, you will go into captivity. When God enters into a covenant, an agreement with his people, there are blessings for obedience There are curses for disobedience. And God has had enough. And he is bringing judgment. He is bringing the hammer on the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, using the Babylonians. Now, two quick things again here. First, God never endorses the behavior of the Babylonians. He never endorses it. In fact, in chapter 2, we will see that God calls them to account for their behavior. They are God's instruments. And they are responsible for their behavior. In fact, Isaiah had prophesied many years ago that the Babylonians themselves would be judged 70 years after this time. But the second thing I want you to notice is that God does not ever rebuke Habakkuk. You know, Habakkuk's, you know, raising his fist at God, and God never rebukes Habakkuk. In fact, he draws close to Habakkuk. He reveals his plan. He shows him the vastness, the complexity of his plan. Habakkuk's complaint, his anger even leads to a deeper intimacy with God. It's not unlike in a good and strong marriage where a fight, a complaint, often can and does lead to deeper intimacy. But you can imagine that Habakkuk is gobsmacked. He cannot believe that this is the answer. He's prayed and this is the answer I get. Are you kidding me? I mean, if the disease that Habakkuk complained about was the sins of the people of Judah, the cure that God is proposing is the Babylonians. 
the cure is worse than the disease. (laughs) So he eventually responds, verses 12 and following, the perplexed prophet complains again. And I want to suggest that these verses are a model. They are a model, one of the best, for how to wrestle with and pray to God. Because what does Habakkuk not do? He doesn't go on Hebrew Twitter and post, God is love, I can't believe he's doing this. He doesn't chunk his faith. And he doesn't say whatever God ordains is right. We'll just all got to get in line. What does he do? He directly addresses God. Verse 12, are you God? Are you not from everlasting? He talks to God. This could be a whole point of a sermon. This could be a sermon series. Talking to God. Taking your real problems, your real feelings, your real complaints to the real and living God. He doesn't understand. Do you talk to God? Do you complain to God? Even if you don't know he's real, perhaps you're here this morning. I'm so glad you're here checking things out. You're not even sure if you believe in Christianity and Jesus and the Bible and all this crazy stuff that we believe. You don't even know if you believe that stuff, but you can still talk to God. As a church, we try to be a church that encourages a culture where people can ask questions. Children, adults, everyone can ask questions, both to Bible teachers and to pastors. But you know what's more important than talking to pastors and Bible teachers about your questions? Talking to God about your questions and your complaints. Talk to God. What does God, what does Habakkuk talk to God about? He takes, he says, God, this is your character, and this are the problems I see, and they don't match up. They don't match up. Because he first talks about God's character, verse 12. He says, You're from everlasting, God. You are eternal. You know all things. You're before all things. Verse 12, and then again in verse 13, he talks about God's holiness. His purity, you can't even look at what is wrong. How can you be so strong, so holy, and allow this to happen? Because then he starts talking about the Babylonians. Verses 14 to 17 describe how the Babylonians treat people. They gather them in fish like a net. They drag them with hooks in their lips. Verse 16 is deeply troubling. It says they worship, they they made sacrifice to their nets. What is that? That is the worship of military technology, the weapons of war. You know those chilling images that will come out sometimes out of like North Korea where they're, you know, everybody's, you know, at a, basically a worship service and they're parading the missiles through, right? That's what's happening here. They're worshiping their weapons of war. It's twisted. It's sick. In verse 17, again, Habakkuk's like, how long? How long? Is this going to go on forever? Which may even be a play on words. Is this violence going to go on forever? Everlasting God? But the heart of the complaint is verse 13. How can you stay silent? Do nothing when all this wicked is around us. But I love how Habakkuk ends. I love how Habakkuk ends his complaint here. He says, I will take my stand. This is verse chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand at the watch post, station myself on the tower. I will look out to see what he will tell me, and I will answer concerning my complaint. I mean, it's like he's, he's, he's going to put himself on the tower and just like, Come get me, God. Uh, He's just putting himself out there. I'm going to take my stand. I'm going to wait. I want you to notice the boldness and the humility. Habakkuk has not sinned. This is not weak faith. This is strong faith that is perplexed. Because beneath Habakkuk's complaint, there's a deep confidence in the character, the purpose, and the nature of God. As one writer put it, Habakkuk's cries and God's answer give us lessons how to live in uncertain times with absolute certainty of the unchanging God. Let me say that last part again. Habakkuk's cries give us lessons how to live in uncertain times 
with absolute certainty of the unchanging God. But enough about Habakkuk. Let's talk about God. I got two things I want to say in closing about God from this first chapter of Habakkuk. The first is this. God's ways are not our ways. And God's ways are past our finding out. We sometimes don't know the why. And for the precise reason that God is past our finding out, Habakkuk is a bearer of good news, telling us of God's goodness, his power, God's sovereignty. God is in control, even if we don't see it. But secondly, and here I'm echoing Rob Norris, the second thing about God is that here's the way that God works. And it's, this has been a, my, blowing my mind for the last month as I thought about this, that God brings salvation out of judgment. If you fast forward this story, judgment does come on Judah. They do go into exile. They are defeated. They are made captives. Their beloved temple is destroyed, and they are dragged off to the nation of Babylon. It is a terrible end for the people of God. But out of the ashes, out of those ashes, 70 years later, God would renew them. He would bring them back into the land of promise. They would build a new temple. They would return. But even more importantly, there was one coming through that line who would be judged for the sins of the world, and out of that judgment would come salvation for all of us, including you and me. Let me say this carefully. The story of Habakkuk underscores, and this is actually a little bit new for me, the story of Habakkuk underscores a fundamental reality of how God has designed the world to work. You see, the world is patterned after the life of Christ. The world is patterned after the life of Christ, which means there is always judgment and death. And it's always followed by salvation and resurrection. You see, God in Christ brings judgment, salvation out of judgment. Think about Jesus. He was a victim of horrendous injustice, and out of that came our salvation. He suffered criminal violence so that we might have peace with God. He faced the consuming wrath of God so that God's wrath would not touch us. And on the cross, like Habakkuk, Jesus wrestled and felt the abandonment of God. And because Jesus was cut off and judged, we can draw near. So as you go out into your week this week, I want you to take these two things with you. These two realities about who God is. God is sovereign and God is in control. And out of judgment, he brings salvation. Out of death, he brings resurrection because, friends, God never forgets his people. <laughs> he never forgets his people. Our names are written on the palms of his hands, so no matter what comes at you this week, God never forgets his people. He is in control, and he will bring judgment because he does bring, eventually and finally, the salvation, the love of God for God's people. Your God never forgets you. Don't ever forget that. Let me pray for us. Our God, we thank you for our elder brother, Habakkuk, who has gone before us and paved this path of passionate love and protest and intimacy with you. And we pray that beginning today and the weeks that follow, that we would follow after him because he is only following after your son, the Lord Jesus, who is judged that we might go free who loved us so much that he gave himself for the life of the world. Help us to know, God, that you're in control and that out of judgment you will bring salvation. For Christ's sake, amen.